Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. So you have passages that you found in Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed that have political meaning. Who wants to go first? Okay. Now, so wait a second. Pardon me? Um, so I just read the passage? Yeah. Now, what I'd like you to do is speak as loudly as possible. Okay. So we can get... You know, hold on. Let me... Tell us what page. And this is on 346, and it begins with um, because. Yeah. And at the bottom, the last paragraph. Okay, and give us a little background to what's, uh, what's around the passage. Shabak is speaking, and he's talking to the, um, you know, the ambassador from, what's it called, Terra, I believe? Terra? And they're talking. Terra, yeah. Yep. And, um, should I just start? Yeah, now let's make sure. You have a different edition. Is that right, Joshua? Yeah, so, Okay, so this is um, this is in chapter eleven. Yeah, I think it's kind of near the end of chapter eleven. Uh, chapter eleven, and it's uh, about four pages in from the back of chapter eleven, and it starts with "because there is nothing." You have that? All right, Carolyn. Because there is nothing, nothing on your set. We are an arrest We left with empty hands. 170 years ago, we were right. We took nothing because there is nothing here but states and their weapons, the rich and their lies, the poor and their misery. There is no way to act rightly with a clear heart on your us. There is nothing you can do that profit does not enter into in fear of loss and wish for power. You cannot say good morning without knowing which of you is superior to the other or trying to prove it. You cannot act like a brother to other people. You must manipulate them for command them for obey them for trick them. You cannot touch another person, yet they will not leave you alone. There is no freedom. It is a box. Yours is a box, a package with all the beautiful wrapping of blue sky, meadows, and forests, and great cities. And you open the box, and what is inside it? A black cellar full of dust and dead men. A man whose hand has been shot up, or whose head has been shot off because he held it out to others. I have been in hell at last. That serves right. Yours is hell. And let's see. And the passage I highlighted. What did you think about it? I think it kind of has a correlation to our world and how um, in our world everything is done for a profit and there is no other real motivating force behind anything. That's kind of the main motivating force behind um, the actions of the people here. and um, It seems like um, like real altruism doesn't exist in Eurus or in this world. Mm-hmm. You always do it to build up. You know, in this world, altruism is usually done to like build up your reputation or something like that, something along those lines. It's never just um, out of pure, you know, wanting to help another person or believing that they're your brother. You always look at them as inferior to yourself. Hmm. You were talking about Earth and comparing it to Eurus. Well, it really talks about the hierarchy, too, um, especially in the line that you cannot say good morning without knowing which of you is superior. Speak a little more clearly. Um, in the sentence, you cannot say good morning without knowing which of you is superior to the other, trying to prove it. I think that's really talking about the hierarchy that exists. Mm-hmm. Well, look look a little farther down on that page, where the the ambassador keeps speaking. She looked at him calmly and keenly. I know it's full of evils, full of human injustice, greed, folly, waste, but it is also full of good, of beauty, vitality, achievement. It is what a world should be. It is alive, tremendously alive, alive despite all its evils with hope. Is that not true? He nodded. 
Now, you man from a world I cannot even imagine, you who see my paradise as hell, will you ask what my world must be like? He was silent, watching her, his light eyes steady. My world, my earth, <coughs> is a ruin, a planet spoiled by the human species. We multiplied and gobbled and fought until there was nothing left, and then we died. We controlled neither appetite nor violence. We did not adapt. We destroyed ourselves, but we destroyed the world first. There are no forests left on earth. <coughs> Excuse me. The air is gray, the sky is gray, it is always hot. It is, it is habitable, it is still habitable, but not as this world is. This is a living world, a harmony. Mine is a discord. You Adonians chose a desert. We Terrans made a desert. We survived there as you do. People are tough. There are nearly a half billion of us now. Once there were nine billion. And goes on to talk about, you can see the old cities and the history that went past. What's actually going on here? What is this strange talk between the ambassador? Between the ambassador and Shevik, and also King is involved in the conversation. If Earth is Earth, what is actually Eurus? If it's not a perfect, if it's not simply a, re, if it's not simply Earth, a different Earth, if it's not made to represent Earth, what actually is it? What does the Earth that's in the book represent? Like one option of what could happen if we keep going down the path we're going, we don't change to adapt. That's a good idea. One option of where we could be ending up going. We're kind of presented with um, three different paths that... Three different paths. Talk about that. I think, yeah, we're presented with three different paths that um, the future could take hold of. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them, if we don't adapt and keep going down the path we're going, there's complete destruction of the mm -hmm. planet. Mm -hmm. It will no longer be habitable. Mm -hmm. And um, there are two options for adaptation. One is... Um, one, Euros, you know, kind of includes um, the depletion of the middle class, it seems like. It seems mm -hmm. like some people, um, it's capitalism, you know, capitalism adapts, essentially. Mm -hmm. Some people go into the really, really high classes, and the rest of the people are really, really poor. And there is hope for moving up and moving through the classes, but it seems like it's very little. Mm. And um, to... To Shevak, uh, that's kind of like hell because on his planet, um, they spread the resources out so that everybody gets equal representation and equal, um, you know, equal amounts, equal food. They're all able to survive, or none of them survive. But mm. on Eurus, it's different. It's um, it's kind of like dog eat dog. You survive if you who survives is who tries hard, the hardest to survive, or who has um, <laughs> the most who's born into the highest status. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, it's just three different paths a world take, or even the United States. <laughs> yeah, it's um, three different paths. One of rampant destruction and the die-off of humanity. And the other, where we don't have a die-off, but we have an equilibrium of sorts, of inequality. And then we have the possibility of a different world, Anaris, in which an attempt is made to produce equality of some sort. In Earth, you don't have freedom because from Ursula Le Guin's point of view in this particular novel, 
earth gets destroyed and how free can someone be if they're living on a wreckage of a planet I mean if you're on an island that's been blown that's been blown to smithereens and there's hardly anything to live for on the on that island how free are you <laughs> it's, so this gets back to the other to the idea of freedom in terms of free will what free will do you have if your options are limited <clears throat> but here we have a situation in which there are three different paths the questions we need to face now is do we have freedom in Eurus or Anaris do either of these other options produce something better what are the options that they're having well let's go on to some of the other things that you found Joshua you found a, a passage what, what passage is it now you have a different edition so you'll have to tell us more than page numbers Tell us a chapter and so on. And, and Joshua, I'm going to ask you to speak up much more loudly and clearly. What I find with all undergraduates is that undergraduates tend to mumble. And when you try to record it, it just simply doesn't work. I have trouble understanding undergraduates also because they... And, you know, they can understand each other, but it's difficult for... <laughs> Adults to understand, to, to understand them, or older people to understand them because of the mumbling. So speak very clearly and slower. Make sure each syllable is pronounced and um, louder. Great. And what what chapter are we dealing with now? Um, it's the very end of chapter four. Very end of chapter four. What page do you have in your edition? It's page one hundred. What's that? Page one hundred. Page one hundred. So it's going to be around in that page here. So let me just. Okay, the very end of chapter 4. What was the first line um, that you're going to read? It starts with, we aren't except biologically. We aren't except biologically. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on in this passage? Um, Especially before the passage, so that we sort of have a, a setting of what's going on. I think in this passage, Shebek and... And Rulag were talking. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> and they get into this discussion about kind of relationships. Where what? They get into this discussion about how the people um, relate to each other in society. And that's what my passage is going to be about. All right. Well, go ahead. Um, We aren't except biologically mother and son, of course. She had regained her faint smile. You don't remember me, and the baby I remember isn't this man of 20. All that is time past, irrelevant. But we are brother and sister here and now, which is what really matters, isn't it? I don't know. She sat without speaking for a minute, then stood up. You need to rest. You were quite ill the first time I came. Then say you'll be quiet all right now. I don't suppose I'll be back. He did not speak. She said, Goodbye, Shevik, and turned from him as she spoke. He had either a glimpse or a nightmare imagination of her face changing drastically as she spoke, breaking down and going all to pieces. It must have been imagination. She walked out of the ward with the graceful measured gait of a handsome woman, and saw her stop and speak, smiling to the aide out in the hall. Um, I thought this passage was really interesting just because, like, they acknowledge that biologically they're related, but then, like, in society, because of um, their... because of the anarchic anarchical state, they're all just equals, like they're just brother and sister, everyone. And I mean, it's an interesting idea because that's, I mean, that's how their society works, is with that kind of identity, instead of smaller family units, if they're all one. Yeah, so you're looking at the the way in which it is possible to have a communal family in in this respect actually that has that has um, a ring to some elements of marxism traditional marxism 
where they talked about the idea of communal families, rather where Marx talked about the idea of communal families rather than parents in a, in a strict sense. And you have to understand that there is a way of thinking about that that goes like this. What qualifications does a person have to have a child? What degree did they get? What education did they get? What authority did they manage to achieve? What respect? What achievement did they get in order to say they're qualified to have a child? So there's nothing like that. Someone just has a child because they're biologically capable of having a child, and that's the end of it. And then the child has got whatever her or his parents happen to be. It's the luck of the draw. So from that perspective, it can seem that a communal raising might be a superior way given the problems that can occur. On the other hand, in our society, that would be tremendously frowned upon. Imagine people having their children ripped from them and being raised communally. I mean, that would cause a violent revolution within a second, half a second, a nanosecond. So what we have here is a situation in which people want to have control over their children, access to their children. They want to raise their children. They want to send their children to private schools, things like that. What kind of perspective are we talking about here? If you think about it, you're talking about a perspective that is uh, looking at society differently. Two different ways of looking at society and different values that are associated with it. What do you think those two different ways are and what are the values that are associated with it that, that make people come up with those two ways of looking at things? Well, in their society, keeping your child is actually frowned upon because um, it it's possessive. So they see um, if you grow up in the community, <coughs> then you're more part of the community. So I think that's more valuable to them than growing up in a um, love individual loving family, you know. But in our society, these or probably on yours too, the exact opposite is true. Um, it's believed to be beneficial to grow up in a loving family where you receive individual attention and love. And um, it's um, often associated with a lot of like psychological problems if you grow up in a, you know, kind of a communal, like, adoptive situation, you know? So um, it is the opposite. And I, I think if um, the entire community um, is like this and every child grows up in a communal situation then it could possibly be beneficial because then the child is more independent and um, you know more um, better at socializing than a child who has been raised in an individual family but um, if most children in the community are raised in individual families then the child is kind of an outcast mm. so it shouldn't be done What do you think? I think that like um, the idea of raising a child in a community sort of emphasizes the idea of equality, which is sort of a really big deal in Anaris, is that um, everyone has rights to everything and, um, and rights to sort of nothing. And, um, and the, the, the way we think about raising our child to become almost little clones of ourselves or, or to in, instill our own morals is a very individualistic view of, um, of sort of child rearing. You know, it's uh, clearly an American way of looking at it, but it's also very similar to what you find elsewhere in the, in the world, but it's different from the classical Marxist perspective. And how does Shevik end up seeing his mother? Um, not in a physical sense, but as a, in a numerical sense. What did she end up being? What does he say? It, what does she say? Um, actually, what does he say when he says a little bit above that? It might have been better, he said, if you had gone on thinking of me as a statistic too. 
And what about this way in which she departed from him? He did not speak at the end. She said, Goodbye, Shevak, and turned from him as he, she spoke. He had either a glimpse or a nightmare imagination of her face, changing drastically as she spoke, breaking down, going all to pieces. It must have been imagination. She walked out of the ward with the graceful measured gait of a handsome woman, and he saw her stop and speak, smiling to the aide out in the hall. What's the emotional connection between him and his biological mother? Well, his mother um, regrets leaving him now, now that she's done it now that he's grown up and um, she seems to finally realize what she's missed out on. I think there is a biological connection there and that's probably what drew her back. But, but when she leaves she's trying as hard as possible to just <coughs> like let, let it go. I mean she's trying to just like Without sort of a cool, emotion. sort of a cool departure, don't you think? Now let's go to the page before that. Uh, page one twenty-two, where he says, uh, "You did," and he's talking about whether he should hold it against her. And, but uh, she says, his mother says, "You did, Palat, and I kept you with us, Palat, the father." And I kept you with us in the domicile, even after you were weaned. We both wanted to. Those first years are the individual are where the are when the individual contact is essential. The psychologists have proved it conclusively. Full socialization can be developed only from that affectional beginning. I was beginning to continue the partner. I was willing to continue the partnership. I tried to have Paulette posted here to Abenay. There never was an opening in his line of work, and he wouldn't come without a posting. He had a stubborn streak. At first, we wrote sometimes to tell me how you were, then he stopped writing. What kind of a tone do you get there? What do you, what do you find about that passage? It seems like she didn't really put much effort into keeping the... Um the partnership going the way when um, in the beginning of the drought later on in the book you see Shebek and uh, what's her name starts with a T his uh, partner like they work really hard to keep the partnership going and he'll um, like after four years he goes up and sees his daughter and his um, partner Mm-hmm. And his daughter has no idea who he is, but he still comes back. Like mm-hmm. his mother doesn't ever come to visit or make any real effort to keep the partnership going or get back together. Mm-hmm. So, and she seems really nonchalant about it too. Yeah, can you sort of imagine your own parents um, saying? <laughs> Uh, those first years are when the individual contact is essential. The psychologists have proved it conclusively. I mean, where are the... Can you imagine your own parents saying, the only reason I was there with you is because it, the, the PhDs told me it was an important thing to do. <laughs> Talk about a coldness that's quite alien. Now, does that mean that she is cold? She just doesn't like showing her emotion. Like later on, she holds a grudge against him for this, actually. So, like when you see the um, syndicate, and she fights the syndicate so hard because um, she knows he's at the center of the syndicate. Mm-hmm. So, she obviously does have emotion, but it seems to be really self centered. Like, she only, um, she wants, you know, she comes back expecting him to fully accept her back as his mother. But, um, that's really selfish for her to do that. Like, expecting to be able to live her life and come back to her loved ones whenever she wants to come back. Interesting. Not just when they need her. One of the things you may think about is that in Anaris, where you have this communal concept, this anarchist slash communist concept, and the blending here of anarchism and communism is a little bit 
interesting as well, because anarchism does not necessarily imply communism. Remember, it was one of those types of, when we talked about anarchy, there was uh, various types of anarchy. Pardon me? We decided that um, Inari's is most like the tribal kind of anarchy. Yeah, well, it had aspects of that, but there was also the idea that uh, of that uh, an of, of of anarchy with a with a strong community connection, and the tribal connection is pretty close. It's, it's fairly close. Sometimes it actually has even a, a stronger than tribal connection. Um, Let's read from this Wikipedia, Wikipedia article that I that I discussed a little bit last time, and it's an interesting article on the anarchy. It was it's nicely put. To, it's been nicely put together. The anarchist communities and anarchist thought. What is anarchist thought? And anarchists are those who believe that all people are imbued with a sort of commonality, common sense that would allow for people to, in the absence of government, come together in agreement to form a functional existence. Morality falls in line with functionality, and it forms and its forms differ. Anarchy does not reject ethics or principles, but rather imposed morality. The rise of anarchism is a, as a philosophical movement occurred in the mid-18th century with its notion of freedom as being based upon the political and economic self-rule. It was a reaction to the rise of nation-state and large-scale industrial capitalism and the corruption that came with their successes. Although anarchists are unified in the rejection of the state, they differ about economic arrangements and possible rules that would prevail in a stateless society, ranging from complete common ownership and distribution to need to supporters of private property and free market competition. <laughs> now, if you remember, we compared this last time with the communist version versus a libertarian version of anarchy, which is really quite different. They're really, really very different. For example, most forms of anarchism, such as that of anarcho-communism, anarcho-syndicalism, or anarcho-primitivism, not only seek rejection of the state, but also other systems which they perceive as authoritarian, which includes capitalism, wage labor, and private property. In opposition, another form, known as anarcho-capitalism, argues that a state without a state is a free market system that is both voluntarist and equitable. Sort of the libertarian version of that. Okay, when used by non-anarchists, the word anarchy is often used as a pejorative, intended to connote the lack of control in a negatively chaotic environment. The association is so strong in mainstream society that some anarchists prefer the term anarchism. The question of foregoing the use of either term in favor of libertarian socialist or the more modern anti-authoritarian remains a topic of debate. The word anarchy, as most anarchists use it, does not imply nihilism, anime, or the total absence of rules, but rather an anti-authoritarian society that is based on the spontaneous order of free individuals in autonomous communities operating on principles of mutual aid, voluntary association, and direct action. Now, when you bring that to the family, to the concept of the family, you see anarchism taken to its, to its communist-oriented full circle. You get, it's not just it's not, just it's not just individualism on the level of capitalism that is wiped out, but individualism on the level of all other elements of society. So that's where this communal raising occurs. This is where this idea of a child being raised by the community is, is, is considered to be important. I was talking to my son this morning, and he raised an issue that was interesting. He said, Dad, why did you keep me in aftercare when I was young? From school, when he was in school up to around 
fifth grade. And I said, well, what's my initial response? My initial response was to be defensive and saying, well, you know, it's not that we didn't want to be around you, but, you know, uh, there was work that had to be done. I had to do work, and uh, his mother was in school. But that didn't sound satisfactory to uh, my son. So I said, uh, and we decided that, and this was the bottom line reason, it was expensive to have him held in aftercare after in school until around 5.30, that it was actually the superior way to live those hours of the day rather than to be picked up early, say around 3 o'clock and brought home and stuck in front of a TV while I was doing work and the mother was doing work. So to be in a structured environment where there are teachers coming up with activities and lots of other kids to play with when you're very young seemed like a good thing. To which he said, oh yeah, it was a much better thing. <laughs> it was a good idea. But you see the tension. The tension of feeling like, are you, a, are you not being a good parent by having that personal contact all the time around, versus the, the communal aspect. And aftercare was, in a sense, a communal aspect. It was a touch of community. It was a touch of communism, <laughs> in a sense, the way we're talking about it now, added to a personal family that happened after 5.30, when, you, when I picked my son up. So you sort of get a blend, but you get the idea. The question is, how far do you take that? And that's what Ursula Le Guin's raising, the issue of how far do you take that concept of let the community rule? It's a very, very interesting political philosophy. How far do you take it? And what you can see is you can have great extremes, the libertarian version of anarchy, which is no rules, versus the communal version of anarchy, which is, oh, let's all come to an agreement that we're all doing this together. We're all raising each other. And then you compare that to selfish, uninhibited greed, which destroyed the planet Earth, versus some sustainable version of inequality, which keeps the masses poor and the elite, the elite, and your rest. Do you get the idea? It's very hard to find a perfect society in any of those pathways. What Ursula Le Guin is doing is showing the dilemma of the human species. How best to organize oneself to get the most optimal experience. There doesn't seem to be a clear understanding of what to do. She's not giving us answers as much as she's raising profound questions. Jennifer, did you have a passage? Uh, near the end, uh, page 58, which is... Page 58? 358. Oh, 358. Um, and why don't you tell us, for those who have a different edition, this is going to be in Chapter 12, right? Yeah, it's um, about midway through Chapter 12. It's going to... Um, okay. I'm sorry, in the middle of a paragraph, but the paragraph starts with a thin, small, middle-aged man. Okay, a thin, small, middle-aged man. Why don't you tell us a little bit about... Uh, what's going on in, in right before this, so that before you, before the the part where you're going to read, so we sort of have a context. Um, well, uh, this is Shevik and his mother and Bedap, and um, they've sort of been talking about Norris and um, I'm going to start with for each. Uh, this is a this is actually a quote from Odo's, um, the the philosopher within the book, sort of. Um, All right. Um, for each, do, do you see Remember, read slowly. <coughs> clearly pronouncing and loud. Um, for we each of us deserve everything, every luxury that was ever piled into the tombs of the dead kings. And we each of us deserve nothing, not a mouthful of bread and hunger. We have, n have we not eaten while others starve? Will you punish us for that? Will you reward us for the virtue of starving while others ate? No man earns punishment. No man earns reward. Free your mind of the idea of deserving, the idea of earning and you will begin to be able to think. Now, those were Odo's words. Right, they were, um, they were of course, Odo's words from the prison letters. Mm -hmm. And um, I just thought that one, one this really sort of enveloped the, um, the conflict between 
URS and NRS and, and the idea that, that um, the URS state can't understand the anarchy within NRS and how, um, like in the very, very beginning when Shevik mm. is explaining to the doctor um, the idea of, of no one owning anything and not feeling superior to women and the doctor is just sort of astonished. I thought that like, that sort of summed up that you have to think about, you, you can't think about this idea of earning, which mm. is... Um, which is such a bedrock of American morality that you, you want to earn things and that's mm -hmm. something we promote and here Odo is sort of trying to abolish that idea. Hmm. Odo, the founding father of the philosophy. Hmm. The philosophy of anarchism. You know, um, on the next page, and I believe it's um, Shevik who's saying, who continues this idea. You see, he said, what we're after is to remind ourselves that we didn't come to Anaris for safety, but for freedom. If we must all agree, all work together, we're in no better than a machine. If an individual can't work in solidarity with his fellows, it's his duty to work alone, his duty and his right. Hmm. Let's read a little bit further, too, because it's an interesting thing about tyranny. We have been denying people that right. We've been saying more and more often, you must work with the others. You must accept the rule of the majority. But any rule is tyranny. Any rule is tyranny. Hmm. The duty of the individual is to accept no rule, to be the initiator of his own acts, to be responsible. Only if he does so will a society live and change and adapt and survive. We are not subjects of a state founded upon law, but members of a society founded upon revolution. Revolution is our obligation, our hope of evolution. The revolution is in the individual spirit or it is in nowhere. It is for all or it is nothing. It is seen as having any end. If it is seen as having any end, it will never truly begin. We can't stop here. We must go on. We must take the risks. That's interesting. The revolution that never ends. The revolution that never ends. You know, there was a sociologist who wrote about this in a very profound way, Max Weber. And he wrote about what societies go through when they begin to develop institutions, when they begin to develop bureaucracies, rules. Initially, what you have is the personality, the forceful aspect of charisma. And charisma captures the imagination. And in a very real sense, the charismatic leader rules by divine right. People don't question the charismatic leader. The charismatic leader is the leader because of his or her status hers or her state. It's not, a, it's not a democratically elected type of situation. And that charismatic leader has to produce miracles, has to produce some type of outcome, has to produce some type of result that proves that divinity, that, divin that divine connection, that, that reason for being perfect. So the followers can say, I am following because it's clear that such and such a miracle producer can, can do such a things. And the charismatic leader then 
has to be phased out of that leadership position eventually. And institutions develop. Rules develop. You can't have a society that lives on charisma forever. You have to have a, divide, a society that evolves from charismatic leadership into institutionalized, rule-oriented leadership. And then you have the development of the bureaucracy. And what we have here is Odo, clearly that charismatic initiator of thought. And just imagine the charismatic leaders we've had in the past on this planet that have reformed their entire society. Mao, Mao Zedong, produced tremendous changes in China for better and ill, for worse and better, both things going up and down. And then you have horrific charismatic leaders that fundamentally changed their society, Hitler, Mussolini, and Franco. But, you know, Franco was less of a evil than Hitler and Mussolini, of course. Uh, Franco was really more oriented around Spain, and Hitler and Mussolini clearly had international conquest. And Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, those are names that come to us when we think of charismatic leaders that change things. And then you think of bureaucracies, bureaucracies that have rules, endless rules. What do you see going on in China right now? You see the development of rules. Slowly but surely, they're trying to put together a judiciary similar with the former Soviet Union, now Russia. They're trying to put together a judiciary. They're trying to bureaucratize the state because they realize that capitalist investment, heavy investment, sustainable investment will occur only when private enterprise can rely on these institutionalization rules, these rules of institutionalizing behavior, the bureaucratic rules, to be able to protect property rights and find means of resolving disputes without shooting somebody or relying on gang warfare or so on. So, you know, this this tug of war that they're talking about in these pages, it's a very interesting passage that you, that you came out with, is very clearly played out with this concept of revolution being always necessary. What does revolution being always necessary imply about this Weberian, Max Weber type of concept of institutionalization that occurs in a state as you move from charismatic leadership to the bureaucratization of a state? What is this idea of a constant revolution? How does that fit into that? Any rule is tyranny. The duty of the individual is to accept no rule, to be the initiator of his own acts, to be responsible. And the revolution is in the individual spirit or it is nowhere. And the revolution must go on. How do you see that? What's, what's the tug of war going on there? I think he's sort of talking about like a resistance of a developing like a bureaucracy. A resistance to developing bureaucracy. Interesting. Keep going. Um, just that um, that sort of that that um, ends up hindering and inhibiting individual um, exploration and and um, like the trouble Shevet came up or had with um, uh, trying to have new ideas in um, an artist sort mm-hmm. of was that bureaucracy starting to form and, and those rules starting to form, and he thinks that that's bad because it prevents progress and it prevents this revolution. So if you continue revolting, re- 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 have a revolution, then um, then you don't get that Weber bureaucracy and you don't um, hinder people. It, it sounds, it's really good. It sounds a little bit like, remember the good old days. When the revolution and the charismatic leader was all that there was. And then the bureaucratization takes away the magic of the charisma, the magic of the revolutionary fervor. And then you have routine. 
And this call to a constant revolution is to stay, in a sense, stay constantly free from rules, stay constantly free from bureaucratization, be constantly free from institutionalization. But would would that be something that would satisfy many people? To always have the society plow it out, plow it on, you know, like you take a, a field and you plow it, you turn the soil up, turn it over. If you never let the field sit, what can grow? Nothing. <laughs> you need some stability. But what happens if you don't plow the field ever? Yeah, you just get weeds, and then you get no growth that's worthwhile. You get random growth. You get So there seems to be a need for revolution, if you think of revolution in terms of plowing the fields and turning the soil over. But non-stop revolution doesn't let anything happen afterwards. It's an interesting thing. But when you do plow the fields, the fields look awfully fresh and new. This idea of resisting that bureaucratization, but if you get captured by the bureaucratization, you die. I mean, that's what the people of an hours were afraid of. Very interesting concepts here. Well, there's a couple passages I'd like to talk about, but before I do that, I'd like to contrast something that's going on in the New York Times today and Monday yesterday. In the front page of today's New York Times, we have an article about North Africa being feared as a staging ground for terror. And just listen to this. This is in February 20th, Tuesday, front page. The plan hatched for months in the arid mountains of North Africa was to attack the American and British embassies here. It ended in a series of gun battles in January that killed a dozen militants and left two Tunisian security officers dead. But the most disturbing aspect of the violence in this normally placid, tourist-friendly nation is that it came from across the river in Algeria, where an Islamic terrorist organization has vowed to unite radical Islamic groups across North Africa. Counterterrorism officials on three continents say the trouble in Tunisia is the latest evidence that a brutal Algerian group with a long history of violence is acting on its promise to organize extremists across North Africa and join the remnants of Al-Qaeda into a new international force for jihad. Last week, the group claimed responsibility for seven nearly simultaneous bombings that destroyed police stations in towns east of Algiers, the Algerian capital, killing six people. This article was prepared from interviews with American government and military officials, French counterterrorism officials, Italian counterterrorism prosecutors, Algerian terrorism experts, Tunisian government officials, and a Tunisian attorney working with Islamists charged with terrorist activities. They say North Africa, with its vast, thinly governed stretches of mountain and desert, could become an Afghan-like, an Afghanistan-like terrorist hinterland within easy striking distance of Europe. That is all the more alarming because of the deep roots that North African communities have with have in Europe and the ease of travel between the regions. Well, what do they mean when they say thinly governed stretches of mountain and desert? Minimalist government. That's one of the troubles they're having in Pakistan right now. The Taliban are on the resurgence in Pakistan and re-entering Afghanistan. And the area in which they're on the resurgence in Pakistan are these mountainous tribal regions which are, at best, thinly governed. I mean, there's no... The Pakistani government simply doesn't extend to those regions. Thinly governed. 
look at how the West views thinly governed. We th see it in the worst possible light of anarchy, the lack of control. One of the complaints that is being made about George Bush, George W. Bush right now, is that what we had before the invasion of Iraq was authoritarianism, brutal authoritarianism. What we have after the invasion of Iraq is anarchy. And what are they saying now? Which was more dangerous? The anarchy, they're saying now, was more dangerous than the brutal authoritarianism. No one was a defender of Saddam Hussein, but no one's, except the anarchists, are defenders of the, of the anarchy themselves. So, you get it both ways. Bad. Authoritarianism, too much government. Anarchy, too little government. Things falling apart. That's how the West often views it. Well, if we're so afraid of anarchy or loss of control, what would we do here in the United States if we felt we were losing control? If attacks came into our soil here in the United States or if for any other reason we thought we were losing control? What would they do in Eurus if they felt there was any loss of control? Well, you kind of see examples of that, like near the end of the book with Eurus, when um, there's that Beneval or something, it's a part of Eurus, and um, there's a war going on there between Thu and Eurus, and I believe Thu is um, kind of attacking Eurus, and um, mm -hmm. there are some people in Eurus that support that, so Eurus is kind of losing control, and at the end, um, Shebek is kept on campus for that reason. He's kept, like, really kept watch over. He's mm -hmm. not on the leave campus at all. So they um, reassert their control by completely trying to control everything. It's like an authoritarian every... government. And I think the same thing that happened here. It kind of, like, during um, terrorist attacks, you see the government trying to um, control things. Control everything? Yeah, especially the airports and stuff. So. Just airports? How far would it go? Would they over? Would the government overthrow democracy and institute authoritarian rule in the United States? Should they feel rattled? Well, I mean, I, I mean, yeah. Obviously, I think it depends on the situation. But um, I think that, like, I mean, every time that we have like a war, from like, the Civil War, um, when. Lincoln suspended the rights of habeas corpus, and, uh, uh, or, yeah, I think, yeah, um, and, um, or, or, like, even now, you could make a, like, a, like, the Patriot could be considered, um, sort of a suspension of rights, and, like, a, a very small step towards Italian or authoritarian government, um, that, like, every time that there's a war, the government does sort of encroach on rights and become a little more authoritarian. Um, but we also are, at least America is so grounded in our Constitution that I'm not sure um, that the people would let the government do that. And we might have to have some sort of revolution if it got too far. Mm, it's very interesting. It's a, it's a huge question. Take a look at yesterday's editorial in the New York Times. An editorial that at no time in my life could I have imagined reading. But it happened yesterday. Listen to this. Yesterday, this is February 19th, Monday, editorial for the New York Times. Making martial law easier. A disturbing recent phenomenon in Washington is that laws that strike to the heart of American democracy have been passed in the dead of night. So it was with a provision quietly tucked into the enormous defense budget bill at the Bush administration's behest that makes it easier for a president to override local control of law enforcement and declare martial law. The provision signed into law in October, that was when the Congress was still controlled by the Republicans, weakens two obscure but important bulwarks of liberty, 
One is the doctrine that bars military forces, including a federalized National Guard, from engaging in law enforcement. Called Posse Comitatus, it was enshrined in law after the Civil War to preserve the line between civil government and the military. The other is the Insurrection Act of 1807, which provides the major exemptions to Posse Comitatus, Comitatus, it essentially limits a president's use of the military in law enforcement to put down lawlessness, insurrection, and rebellion, where a state is violating federal law or depriving people of constitutional rights. For example, when there was heavy segregation here in the South, on a number of occasions, uh, the National Guard had to be called out to protect African Americans whose, whose liberties were being um, assaulted. All right, continuing with the editorial. The newly enacted provisions upset this careful balance. They shift the focus from making sure that federal laws are enforced to restoring public order. Beyond cases of actual insurrection, the president may now use military troops as a domestic police force in response to a natural, natural disaster, a disease outbreak, a terrorist attack, or to any, quote, other condition, unquote. That's quite a sweeping statement. Changes of this magnitude should be made only after a thorough public airing, but these new presidential powers were slipped into the law without hearings or public debate. The president made no mention of the changes when he signed the measure, and neither the White House nor Congress consulted in advance with the nation's governors. There is a bipartisan bill introduced by Senators Patrick Lee, Democrat of Vermont, and Christopher Bond, Republican of Missouri, and backed unanimously by the nation's governors that would repeal the stealthy revisions. Congress should pass it. If changes of this kind are proposed in the future, they must get a full and open debate. So the legal infrastructure for declaring martial law in the United States has been established. Before now, the president literally could not declare martial law because it would have been a violation of law. The only thing he was able to do is to use troops to restore public order in the cases of an insurrection or something like that. But now, if any other thing happens that's disturbing, he can institute martial law. That's a new thing. Now, let's compare this with Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, the anarchic situation in reverse. <laughs> Not the situation in which we had anarchy and anaris, but we had the reverse of that in when the freedoms needed to be taken away. Did they hesitate to do that? It's an interesting thing. You see, Ursula Le Guin's not commenting on societies that are totally alien. She's making direct connections to us, to our human condition now. That's why we can gain a perspective. It's very hard to have these debates or these discussions in political science classes without this type of other way of looking at things that you get from science fiction. Science fiction really helps with regard to this. There's one other thing I'd like to bring your attention to. And that has to do with students. Since you're all here, let's go to page S chapter 5, beginning at chapter 5, page 127. And Shevik is wanting, he's being asked by the students to teach some courses. Initially, when Shevik was on URS, they didn't want him to teach any courses. They just wanted to do his research and so on. But he, he liked the idea of students coming to him and asking him to teach some courses. So he did. And then the directors of the university initially said no. They didn't want that to happen. But then he insisted. This is a little bit of rebellion going on, a little bit of anarchy going on. And he said he had to. So let's see what he says. This is the top of page 127 in the middle of that paragraph to start with, to avoid unpleasant publicity. Everyone see that? 
beginning in chapter 5, second page into chapter 5. To avoid unpleasant publicity, the rectors of the university gave in, and Shevik began his course to a first-day audience of 2,000. Attendance soon dropped, so he was teaching this class. He stuck to physics, never going off to the personal or the political, and it was physics on a pretty advanced level, but several hundred students continued to come. Some came out of mere curiosity to see the man from the moon. Others were drawn by Shevik's personality, by the glimpses of the man and the libertarian, which they could catch from his words, even when they could not follow his mathematics. And a surprising number of them were capable of following both the philosophy and the mathematics. They were superbly trained, these students. Their minds were keen, fine, keen, ready. They weren't working, they rested. They were not blunted and distracted by a dozen other obligations. They never fell asleep in class because they were tired from having worked on the rotational duty the day before. Their society maintained them in complete freedom from want, distractions, and cares. What they were free to do, however, was another question. It appeared to Shevik that their freedom from obligation was in exact proportion to their lack of freedom of initiative. He was appalled by the examination system when it was explained to him. He could not imagine a greater deterrent to the natural wish to learn than this pattern of cramming in information and disgorging it at demand. At first, he refused to give any tests or grades, but this upset the university administrator so badly that not wishing to be discourteous to his host, he gave in. He asked his students to write a paper on any problem in physics that interested them and told them that he would give them all the highest mark so the bureaucrats would have something to write on their forms and lists. To his surprise, a good many students came to him to complain. They wanted him to set the problems, to ask the right questions, They did not want to think about questions, but to write down the answers they had learned. And some of them objected strongly to his giving everyone the same mark. How could the diligent students be distinguished from the dull ones? What was the good in working hard? If no competitive distinctions were to be made, one might as well do nothing. (laughs) Well, of course, Shevik said, troubled, if you do not want to work, you should not work. What is he comparing now? What is he talking about now? What is Ursula Le Guin talking about now? I think it's kind of talking about not having to think for yourself. Um, And that passage reminds me of another passage that I marked as one of mine that I like to talk about, where they talk about just education in general. Mm -hmm. And then I think that says that Education like has become too rigid and authoritarian. People just he said kids learn to parrot Odo's words as if they were laws. Um, and then he goes on to say it's always easier not to think for oneself. Just find the safe hierarchy and settle in. Now, what does this phenomenon remind you of, though? Is this alien to our educational system here? This is very much our educational system, isn't it? When you go into the pre-med track, it's just digesting and disgorging. And to get here, to get to Emory, the elite institution, what did you have to do? You had to pass an awful lot of standardized tests. You had to learn the stuff, and you had to disgorge it. And what have we been talking about here, the importance to do in science fiction and politics? Haven't we, in a sense, been talking about what Shevik's been talking about? how to think differently than you've been trained to do, and how hard it is to come up with your own ideas. The loose structure of the exams is interesting. I want to give you an interesting story. In all of my freshman seminars, I used to give all A's, and I gave tons of work, and I corrected them, and let all the students revise their assignments until they got them perfect. And I would often grade weekly assignments four times before they got them perfect. I would just keep grading and grading and grading and improving and improving and improving and everybody got an A. That passage that I just read to you was almost verbatim what my department eventually ended up telling me. They said I had to stop. It was not to be allowed any longer. I even said it was a violation of academic freedom to do this, to complain about it like that. I had a method that was working and the students were learning a lot. They said, no, you have to distinguish between 
the diligent and the less diligent. And you are not allowed to let students repeat their assignments. I was told that point blank. It's a very interesting phenomenon that we're, that we're at. We have a society that's very much like this. If my department, all of the members of my department had read that passage, I guarantee you, almost every head except mine in that department would be nodding yes in agreement. The students of yours had it right. Give them tests, distinguish. But what was Shevik interested in teaching? He was interested in teaching how to think. And that can only be gotten with self-initiative. How to come up with different thoughts, to think differently. How to be a revolutionary in thought. You cannot digest information and disgorge it and be a revolutionary. You're not, revo you know, you're not revolutionizing anything if you're just disgorging what people have already given you. To be a revolutionary, you must have ideas that come from within. And so that corresponds with his understanding, Shevik's understanding of intellectual freedom, freedom from the rules. But you see, in our society, we grip those rules with a ferociousness, and even the students demand them as a means of upward mobility. 